I say this to you, now listen carefully. If you write a book, do not show it to your wife. Do not show it to your husband. Do not show it to your best friend. They will lie. People come to me and say, I've got a story for you, Jeffrey. They've got a wonderful short story. It's worth 30 pages. It's not worth 400. And they don't know the difference. I'd had my money stolen. I was facing bankruptcy, 400,000 pounds. I was a young member of parliament, had to leave the House of Commons. I thought this is a good story. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. Now we're here at Emirates Litfest and we have agreed to do the podcast in conjunction with them. So the next few episodes are literally famous authors, great writers, people that have got a story to tell and are also good at telling stories. And our next guest is none other than the incredible Lord Geoffrey Archer, probably one of the most successful novelists of our generation. Now he's 82 years old, but he's sold 275 million copies of his books. He worked for Margaret Thatcher in government. He's also been to jail. He's got a great story and he's an incredible storyteller. Let's cue the music and get stuck in. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Well, what a privilege it is to have you here on the Very show nice. today. I think long and hard about you and, and how you've resonated with me over the years, and I'm 52 years old. And so- How old? 52. You're a child. <laughs> You're an insignificant layabout child. But my parents... Your life at 52, I'm 82. I'm going to celebrate that for just one second. <laughs> now, my parents are a similar age to you. So my parents were born, I think, in 44 and 45. They're not a similar age. I was born in 1940. Well, there's... They're children too. <laughs> and they will celebrate that as well, for sure, when they hear it. <laughs> and my, my dad, my dad's a big fan of your work. And so there's quite a lot of areas to talk to you about today, but... As we're at the Emirates Festival of Literature, I suppose it's best that we start off with your, I suppose, biggest success has been being a novelist and the great work that you've done over the years. Now, when we go back, I, I wrote a book and, and some people know this and what, I found it a really painful experience. It took me a long time. It was What's frustrating. 18 months. Oh, that is a long time. Measure it if you can in hours because some people, I mean, I take a thousand hours over a book. I never measure it in a year or 18 months. Okay. And it depends how many drafts you did. Can you remember how many drafts you did? There were many. I always find at the end of a book, Spencer, that I have to do more work on the first 100 pages than the last 100. Okay. When you, when you start a book, though, every book you handwrite, is that correct? Correct. Every word is handwritten. I rise at 6 in the morning. I work from 6 to 8, 10 to 12, 2 to 4. Six to eight, bed at 9.30, up again at 5.30. I wish it was easier, and the draft you have of Next in Line is the 14th. Really? And I, I, you'd think by now, wouldn't you, I could do it in two or three drafts. Nope, that's the 14th. And in fact, in the book I'm working on now, the biggest change in the whole book came on the 13th draft. So when young people come to me and say... Uh, how do you do this, Jeffrey, or that, Jeffrey? I say, well, look, 
there is no substitute for damned hard work. The best idea came on the 13th dropped. Wow. Now, I was over the last few days, I, I listen to books I don't read, okay, as often as I used to. So I'm... Well, the facts on that are fascinating, Spencer. When I was uh, 10 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, I had 42% of me was Kindle. 1% was audio. Yeah. And 50-something percent was real books. Audio are now 9% of book readers. In the, they've gone from 1 to 9 in 10 years. And they're still growing. So getting the, the right reader, mm -hmm. uh, it's a very... It, it, I didn't give it a second thought. It's now a big deal. I think, for, I think, well, again, with the advent of podcasting and stuff like that, people are listening far more, aren't they? We have Alexa and everything at home, and so my parents, I know, will put an audio book on while my mum's cleaning at home. So that's, that's very normal for her. For me, I, I have to listen to a book while I'm doing something, and it can be as mundane as... How can you hear it if you're doing something? Because it can't be anything that, that difficult. So it's something that doesn't use my brain. So like, let's say sweeping the garage or going for a walk or stuff like that. Ah, I see. Yeah. Okay. And so while I'm, well, if I sit still, I don't process so it. So it's in a car. I need to move in a car, walking. Got it. And yeah. so every night I go for a walk for an hour and that's my oh, hour. That's my hour yeah. of listening. Earphones on. Earphones on. As you I go. You'll get run over by a car because you're not looking when you cross the <laughs> no, Luckily I've got the, the pavement to walk on. Oh. But no, I have them in, and I was listening for the last few nights. I've been listening to Next in Line, right? And so, getting getting into novels. If you look at typically the type of books that I read, I don't go for novels. I want to be consuming something where I'm learning about somebody's somebody's experience, where there's 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 some pain involved, and it's almost like they've overcome the pain and they've gone on to do greater things with their life. So I would recommend, there are two non-fiction books. I've become a great fan of Ben McIntyre. Okay. Uh, his book on Colditz, I mm -hmm. think you would enjoy. Uh, but the greatest non-fiction writer I've, I mean, he's just a genius, Stefan Zweig. If you get his book on Europe before Hitler came to power uh -huh. and during Hitler coming to power uh -huh. and Hitler in power, Staggering! It's really, a genuine masterpiece. Will you spell his name for me afterwards? So I will. Stefan Zweig, S W E I G. All you listeners. Yes. He wrote a novel called Beware of Pity, which is genius. Mm -hmm. Genius. He's the greatest writer storyteller, in my view, other than Shakespeare, who's ever lived. The opening of that book, Beware of Pity. I arrive late for the dinner party, and he was sitting on the other side of the table, sadly too far away to speak to. Of course, everybody wanted to speak to him. At the end of the meal, when I was going home and getting my coat, he joined me and said, May I walk home with you? I said, Of course, sir. You will know a little about me. I know everything about you, sir. You're a national hero. Then it's time I told someone the truth. Wow. Now that young man is genius. Talk to me about storytelling. It's a God-given gift. No one can learn it. It's something no, you're born with. You can't pop down to Marks and Spencer's and buy a packet of storytelling. No. <laughs> it's a God-given gift. I'm not a counter-tenor. 
I don't play the violin. Sure. I'm not a ballet dancer. Mm -hmm. I'm a storyteller. And it's a God-given gift. When did you learn or realize that you were? Well, must, you must have been young. I've always been a raconteur. Yeah, okay. Always been a storyteller as a child. Didn't realize you could actually make money doing it. <laughs> it never crossed my mind. I wanted to be prime minister and captain of the England cricket team. And I must say, Spencer, failed hopelessly in both. In fact, I've been waiting for several years to be captain of the England cricket team. And then sat down and wrote a book called Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less, which uh, that was a triumph. It sold 3,000 copies and made 3,000 pounds. And, and my wife said, it's time for you to get a better, time for you to get a real job, anyway. Yeah. Time for you to get a real job. And then I sat down and wrote, not, and I sat down and wrote Cain and Abel and my life. Wait, 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 as, as you were storytelling when you were younger, though, were writing the first book, did you sit down and say to yourself, look, I think I've got this gift, I can write a book? Or, no. Or did someone say to you, you, you need no. to write a book? I thought the sto I'd lost my money. I'd, I'd had my money stolen. I was facing bankruptcy, £400,000. I was a young member of parliament, had to leave the House of Commons. I thought, this is a good story. Uh, what I didn't realise when I wrote it was I was a story... I know, and even when I handed it in, I didn't. And 15 publishers turned it down. Really? The 16th publisher reluctantly published 3,000 copies. And just about sold 3,000 copies. It went into paperback and sold 25,000 in the first month. Uh-huh. And they decided reluctantly to publish another 10, and they sold in a month, and then another 10. It's now sold 27 million copies. Incredible. Uh, so that's, that's when I said to my wife, actually, I think I will. I think, I think this is what I'll do. Yeah, <laughs> I found something here. I think maybe I'm not a counter-tenor. <laughs> then when you take something as, 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 as harsh as a bankruptcy and how it affects our mental well-being and our fortitude and... You know, we can lose our confidence and our self-belief. It's a really kind of like emotional time for people. Do you think that you're able to take that experience and, and, and use it as, as almost ammunition uh, so that you can ignite some fire inside I, of your belly? I say to young people all the time, Spencer, write what you know about. You are a useless individual from Essex <laughs> doing a podcast. I would expect Essex to be in your story. I would expect a podcast to be in your story. I would expect Dubai to be in your story. Because when I read it, I would know you knew what you were talking about. I had a lady come to visit me quite recently who said, uh, well, it's all right for you, Jeffrey. You've met all the world's most famous people. You've been everywhere. I don't know. I said, what do you do, young lady? What do you do? She said, I work in a hairdresser. I said, there's more stories in a hairdresser yeah. than I will ever find in my life. So they're out there. Stories are out there. But it's a God-given gift to spot them. So not only being able to tell them, being able to spot them spot. too. Yeah. You've got a story there, Spencer, because of the fascinating life you've led. Of course there's a story there. You may not be aware of it because you're such a turnip. You may not be aware of it, but I can promise you it's in there. And, and it may, by the way, it may be a short story. I get a lot of people come to me and say, I've got a story for you, Jeffrey. And they haven't. They've got a wonderful vignette. 
They've got a wonderful short story. It's worth 30 pages. It's not worth 400. And they don't know the difference. And then occasionally, with the book after this one, I sat next to a man who said, and I get it every day of my life, if you, if you heard my life story, it would be one of the world's best sellers. And I'll split 50-50 with you. And I said, wait a minute, have you killed your mother? No, Jeffrey, I haven't killed my mother. Well, go away. <laughs> this man said, I've, I've just been reading you recently, Jeffrey, he said. And I said, well, I have been very kind of you, sir. And, it, and I've got a story for you. And I thought, oh, cool. here we go. <laughs> and he told me in two minutes my next book. Oh, really? Oh, yes. He told me exactly in two minutes. And I thought, that doesn't happen very often, Spencer. Okay. He was in a very high position. He'd witnessed something. He passed it on to me. And I could see a whole book there. Doesn't happen very often. When you come up, I mean, how many books have you written? 75, is it? 70 what? 75 books. I've written 30 books. Th 92 short stories. Ah, short stories. As 92 well, short stories. So 70 plus, yes, pretty well, um, 92. A lot, of, a lot of books. I've, I was up at 5.30 this morning working when you were still in bed wondering what to do or who you were seeing. And then you woke up and you saw I was on the list. Well, that's, that's how little you know about me, because at 5.30, I was out walking, listening to your book this morning. Good well. man. So I, You're I, a 5.30 man. 4.30, I wake up every day. Good man. <laughs> so it's, I'm, a, I'm a morning person. I'm, I'm with you. I'm an, no noise, no people. Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I get so much done before 9 o'clock in the morning. Wise man. And uh, Wise man. Yeah. Hit the sack, hit the sack at 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, and try and... Get the sleep. Me too. I'm a 10 o'clock. Yeah. Okay. So as I said, I, could, I can only go by my own experience of being involved in writing a book. And then, you know, you, you share with me. You finished it. Yeah, yeah. It's finished. It's published and whatnot. But oh, it was published. Yeah, yeah. It was published. A novel. No, no, no. It was it was a book. It, it was a business related book. Ah. But it was the, the whole journey of doing it was difficult. So what I, I'm fascinated and I admire enormously somebody that is able to write many books. But more importantly, the ideas where those ideas come from. Now, you just mentioned that you spoke to somebody when two minutes in, they've given you an idea for a book. How often does that happen? And if, and if it isn't often, where do these ideas come from? It could be two times in two days and then nothing for a year. Uh, particularly with short stories. I'm always looking for short stories. I love telling short stories. On the bigger novels, when I was a child... I thought I want to write a story about a man born with everything, a man born with nothing. They only meet once and it changes their whole lives. It can be as simple as that. 600 pages later, you've got Cain and Abel. She only stopped screaming when she died. It was then that he started to scream. And then you're on the way. And it's like Once you're asking, there's the crueler question. Where does it come from? A lady got hold of me in India, a journalist, and she locked the door, which worried me. <laughs> and she said, I want you to tell me where you get the stories. So I said, well, it's a God-given gift. I'm just very fortunate and very, no, no, I won't tell anyone. No, I promise you, it just happens every day of my life. And no, I've closed the door. I'm not. Oh, right. <laughs> right. I live in Cambridge in England. 
and there's a beautiful river at the end of the garden called the Cam. Mm -hmm. And four o'clock in the morning, when no one's looking, I go down and dig a hole, and there they are. <laughs> she stormed out in anger. Haven't seen her since. <laughs> she didn't understand. For those who understand the game of cricket, and I hope you do, otherwise, what's the point of you? The great South African batsman Pollock told mm -hmm. me a story once about a, a very fine cricketer called Gibb. Fine, but not the great, you know, top class, international. And he was having trouble with his timing. So he rang up the great man who was 65 at the time and said, great man, could you come down and just watch me and tell me what I'm doing wrong? So he watched him. He came down, watched him, and he said, yeah, you've got the timing wrong. He said, what do you mean? Flow's not right. Bowled one to me, and they bowled one to him, and he hit it out of the ground. Mm -hmm. And Gibbs said to Pollock, how did you do that, sir? He said, I don't know. <laughs> because he didn't know it was a God-given gift. He had timing that the gods only give very few. And he we think hit. about we think about the brain, and we talk about you know the, the, our computerized part of our brain, and our, and our emotional part of our brain, and obviously with the chimp paradox, there's then the chimp part of our brain, and so much is automated, and then we have emotions that get in the way of the automated stuff that we use. When I, when I think about you being a storyteller, that that's one thing, but having the creative ideas, that's another thing. And how your brain must operate and work, even as alive as you are right now, it's like that comes from a sentence, that comes from a, a two-minute conversation, that whole book. That in itself, just understanding the mind, fascinates me how how you're able to do that. I know that you're you're you know it's easy to put it down, it's easy to say, you know, it's a God-given gift, you know, that's what it is. There's more to it than that. There's something there's something It's weird, isn't it? It's deeper than that. In the plane on the way over yesterday, I suddenly saw a switch in the next book that I hadn't thought of before, so I had to get paper and pen immediately. And now I can't tell you how it came. I just suddenly saw that if I could get a stamp in France in 1787, and I've now got my researchers working on, is that possible mm -hmm. to get Louis the Sixteenth on the throne? Mm-hmm and could get a letter from Jefferson to the British Parliament, but I needed the stamp, and the stamp was the thing that would switch the story in a totally different... Now, I don't know, I was sitting at, in eating dinner in, on an Emirates plane to Dubai when that came up, threw the dinner aside, got the paper, and wrote five pages. I've now already spoken to my chief researcher and said, is it possible? Have you, have you ever sat down with like psychologists or people that really understand the mind and, and allowed them to explore that with you to find out? No. Is there a reason that you haven't? No, well, no one's ever asked me. You're the first who's gone this deeply into it. I just think it. They're usually satisfied with, I'm a, I'm a storyteller, aren't I lucky? You're digging far deeper. Well, you know, you've got this thing with, with hard work and talent. Okay, yeah. it's very often spoken about. Hard okay. work. And, and, and you know, talent's nothing without hard work. Correct. Okay, and, and hard work will get you somewhere even if you don't have correct. talent. Okay. Good. Correct. So there's no doubt that the, the hard work is important. With you... I could sum this up with children. If you have talent and energy, you'll be a king. 
if you have energy and no talent, you'll be a prince. Mm -hmm. If you have talent and no energy, you'll be a pauper. That's bang on the money. When I think about you, it's just like you've, you, yes, you've, you've been a successful author. Yes, you've made lots of money and you've created lots of money. Money's not important. No, no. I don't mean sold, that. Sold I, millions I, I, of I can hear listeners saying, you would say that, wouldn't you? I'm 82 years old. I have everything I want in life. I want more readers. All I want. If you said to me today, Spencer, I'll give you one million readers or a million pounds, which would you have? I'll have the million readers, All please, day. every day. You can take it with the podcast. Yes. Exactly the same. Give me yes, one, one more pe yeah. million people listening to the podcast. There you are. Absolutely. But again, arguably, we're both fortunate where money isn't a driving factor in our life. No. Because when you have money, you realize you don't need as much as you thought you were going to need in the first place. And, you know, you find, you find your kind of equilibrium. But when, when, I, when I look at the... the, the if, if storytelling is a gift and that's your God-given talent, by gosh, is it some talent? Because who do you compare yourself to or who could we compare yourself to? Fiction, non-fiction, in this space that has written as many books as you and has been as successful as you as an author. Don't you know need to compare. Is there 10? Is there 5? Is there 50? What? But one is very touched when the Daily Mail came out last month and said I was the greatest living storyteller and then the New York Times said it had said it six years ago so you you say I, I read my rivals very carefully indeed and try and learn from them of course I do how interesting that you just use the word rivals oh yes I'm a competitor by nature you're quite right well spotted I, I'm a competitor by nature I want to be number one so you want to be the best when in my days as a runner, I was never good enough. Okay. And I spent my life coming third and doing my best time. Yeah. And I was never, never going to broke my heart. Ran against some of the greatest athletes that have ever lived. But they said goodbye to me at the starting line, which was very kind of them to speak to me at the end. So, yes, I've always been a competitor. You can't, I, I think the athletics put the competitor into me. And you spotted that word rivals and you have every right to. It's great having admiration and respect for people that, that, that are in the same space as us. Yes. But you'd be a fool if you didn't have something inside yeah. of you, you know, that was like, oh, you know, and somebody has a, a hit book novel comes out and it's in a, a smash hit, number one bestseller, yada, yada, yada. The world's talking about it. And of course you're pleased for them, but there's a little piece inside you that's dying at the, at the same time. And then your moment comes and your book's launched and it becomes a success and everyone's talking about you and it's like kind of like... Well, the one I can't get it, I, the one, I, no names will be mentioned here, but you've pressed on that line, interestingly, Spencer. There's a couple of authors at the moment who are selling a lot more than I am. One is a woman's author mm -hmm. and she's captured the world. Mm -hmm. and, and one is a crime writer mm -hmm. and he's very popular. Mm -hmm. And I learn nothing from them. Whereas with Stefan's Zweig, I learn on every page. Why can't I do that? Why? Do, how does he do that? And I learn from him all the time. Yes, when I grow up, when I grow up, I'm going to be Stefan Zweig. So you could see the content of your rivals, and you all of the content, or did you get to a point where you said to yourself, "I can't, oh, no, I, I can't, it, I can't." It's not her fault. Uh, she's being read by millions of people, and good luck to her. Just not. It's woman's romance and it's not me. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I'm reading at the moment Ben McIntyre's Cold It and loving it every minute of it. Finding it very hard to believe, but it's written with such authority that I have to believe it's true. So we all have, to, I mean, people listening to this will say, yeah, I, I don't read Jeffrey Archer. I read so and so. That's fine. In my own family, my wife would never read me if we weren't married. Of my two sons, one of them would never read me if he wasn't my son. Many of my friends don't read me. And then I've got other relations and friends who, I mean, dare I say it, two members of the royal family who write and say, when's the next book? When's the next book? So you, you, you live with that. Who are your greatest critics? Critics? Who are the greatest critics? Is it, uh, is it one of your sons or is it your... You know? No, they, I, I say this to you. Now, listen carefully, young man. I'll say this to you so that everyone listening can hear this. If you write a book, are you listening out there? <laughs> They're watching. Do not well. show it at all watching. <laughs> Do not show it to your wife. Do not show it to your husband. Do not show it to your best friend. They will lie. They will tell you it's wonderful and you are a genius. Get a good friend to show it to someone who's never met you okay. and will write one page. Then you'll get the truth. I'm much more touched by a fan from Venezuela who says I was up all night crying. Much more. That really hits me. Or the young girl in America who said, I have now written three, I've now read three books. And you're my second favorite author. <laughs> I am eight years old. Yours, Lucy. Oh, wow. No, no. You get these one sometimes. I mean, I love them. I love that one. That one letter, email, comment that responds in that way is for me, and I get them here with the podcast. Is for me worth a hundred days? I agree. It's such a boost for me when you read it, and you know, and, and, and it's, it's sometimes you know, oh, it's, this is so great. But a lot of the time, is you've no idea how that. My husband and I listened. I mean, you've no idea how that made an impact on how we deal with our daughter. That's wonderful. And that, honestly, we had this, didn't we? We've had this very recently. Uh, uh, my husband died recently. We went back to the States, and I find myself losing the will to live, but, but you keep me going. And that, That's a great honor. That, That's an honor, young yes, man. Yes, very much so. And I don't take it lightly. You know, the first and thing I do, shouldn't. I contact them directly myself. Oh, quite right. I, if, they're, if they're here in quite Dubai, right. I will go and grab a coffee with them and just say thank you um, if, right. they're, if they're not. Because it's like that... That's worth everything. When you come back to the whole money thing, that's worth everything to me. You know, I, I will keep that as pride of place in my phone for ages. And anyone that dares, dares ask me about the podcast, that's the first thing that, that, that's discussed. Of course. And that's very human. Mm. It's just like, it's people acknowledging you, isn't it? I, I, I had a lady in Mumbai. Everyone, she knew my love of art and my love of museums and she was the head of the Royal Palace Museum. And I was speaking in Mumbai. And she'd kindly come to hear me speak. 8,500 people came to hear me speak. Mumbai is the best book festival on earth. Wow, on earth. And she said, would you like to see the museum at the palace? And I said, yes. And I can usually tell fairly quickly if someone's read one of my books. I couldn't get it with her. I couldn't couldn't find out. I just knew she knew my love of art. 
So we got to the front door to say goodbye. And she said, I want to thank you. And I said, what for? She said, the prodigal daughter. And I said, why? Now, the prodigal daughter is the sequel to Cain and Abel and is the story of the first woman president of the United States. And they still haven't managed it, Spencer. It's the print of the first. She said, I read that book, Jeffrey, and I believed I could do anything. And I am the first woman head of this museum. Wow. And I thought, wow. I thought, wow. And because that wasn't why I wrote it. Yeah. I, I wrote it because I wanted to write about the first. I was working for Margaret Thatcher at the time. And I wanted to write about the first. We'd had the first woman prime minister in Great Britain. And I wanted to write about the first woman president of the United. God knows that bunch are pathetic, aren't they, those Americans? They're Trump and Biden. 280 million people and there isn't a woman who couldn't run them. Of course there is. They're just not going into politics. Good point. Okay, let's move on to then. So there's two things more, more important than writing books and one of them is sport because it brings us all together and the other one is our divisiveness and uh, opinions about how our wonderful country has been run and is being run i grew up with margaret thatcher as my prime minister and i quite liked her when i compare her to almost everybody since i would hope so in comparison she was I, it was an honour to work with her for 12 years, and I assumed every Prime Minister would be like that, and I was wrong. <laughs> what was it that made her different? Was it something to do with her values? Was it more to do with her discipline in the role? What, what was it that made her... Well, that word discipline. Uh, she taught Mary and myself. Unquestionably taught us what discipline really was. This is a, an easy thing to say, and for listeners to say, you would say that, wouldn't you, Geoffrey? Yes, I would. Her love of her country. She put her country first and foremost, everything she did. She wanted Britain to be the best. I once said to her, uh, Prime Minister, would you rather be President of the United States or President of Russia? And she said, Russia, Geoffrey. And I said, why, Prime Minister? Shit. So much more to do. <laughs> and I think that sums her up, really. She definitely seemed like the right kind of person to be in that type of job. And then I look now, and I've looked over the years, and I'm like, when have we been in a position where, where we've got the right kind of person doing the job? You know, we're very critical of what Tony Blair did when he supported the invasion of Iraq. His biggest mistake. Yes. He had a good premiership. Yeah. That was his biggest mistake. And it, it, if he hadn't done that, if he hadn't done down the George Bush route of wanting to be worshipped in the White House, it would have been a very remarkable pre uh, a premiership, and he should never have given way to Gordon Brown. He should have fought the next election, and I believe he would have won it. When we, when we look at how the rest of the world sees the UK politically... At the moment? Well, I... I not a republic. Yeah. I would argue over recent time we had obviously Donald and, and Boris in at the same time and it seemed to the rest of the world that there were two clowns in, in charge of you know some important countries out there. And when, when we consider how the rest of the world has, an, has an, a different opinion, my wife is from Uzbekistan. She's Armenian from Uzbekistan. Oh, oh. And so she grew up in, uh, in the Soviet years. Her parents were there before the Iron Curtain came down. And so they see the world with a different set of eyes. Through a satellite eyes. Yeah, but a good example is recently with Ukraine. 
Yes. They ha they have a very different narrative around. Ah, what are the, what does she say about Ukraine? So their their belief is that that first of all, Ukraine was never one country really, because there was part of Ukraine that didn't want to be part of Ukraine and speak Ukrainian. They always wanted to be part of Russia. Yeah. But they weren't. I accept. Um, not necessarily Crimea. No, okay. no, 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 yeah, no. Crimea is the bordering state. That's right, yeah. Donetsk and all these yeah. areas. Yeah. And so there were the people there that wanted to be part of Russia. And then on top of that, there was what it was essentially um, a criminal underworld that managed and run that part of the country as well that were creating problems for Ukraine as it was. She said the problem is quite simple. Ukraine was the one piece of green grass between us and NATO. We'd asked for many years that Russia didn't have NATO on its borders. And it was promised for many years that it wouldn't have. But slowly, one country after the next country after the next country... Joined NATO. Joined NATO and became close to Russia's border. And Boris uh, said, that's it. Okay, if you do it anymore, I'm going to have to do something about it. And she's like, why, why would they keep pushing? Why keep goading Putin? Why keep pushing down that path. This is your wife speaking, not you. My wife speaking, completely. What do you expect is going to happen? And imagine if it was the other way around. The United States has said, don't put your tanks on our borders. Don't put NATO on our borders. Okay, we don't want that to happen. And they're promised that won't happen. And then it slowly does happen. What would the United States do in response They'd to be that? blowing them out of the water. Right. So when you... And again, when I look at it from both points of view... I've got this narrative that comes out of the British media about all of the stuff that uh, Putin is doing and the problems he's causing and, and this, this catastrophic scenario. Are you still your wife or is this you? This is, I'm hearing two sides. How interesting. But most people aren't. Most people are hearing one side, including my wife. Yeah, yeah but she'll have such... As a satellite, she'll have such a strong view. But she was she grew she went to school in Wales, so she's been you know she's been educated in the UK. So it's not like she doesn't watch the UK news. But if you go to her family, they're they're a wealthy family. You go and spend time with them. They have a very strong opinion that's very different to our opinion. Yeah, yeah sure. With very reasonable arguments that are very different to ours. And obviously, Ukraine is stuck in the middle to some degree, or most of the people. Yeah, but ask her how she feels about because what I'm getting out of Russia from my Russia. I have friends in Georgia. Okay. And they're saying the mistake he's made is sending people to the front line who are not capable of being soldiers and they're dying. And hold it, Spencer, the mothers are saying it's the mothers who are saying enough is enough. And they are burning down. They are burning down the recruitment centers, the mothers, because they're not recruiting them in Moscow. St. Petersburg. No. They're recruiting them out oh, in the country. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. And the mothers are saying enough is enough. Well, the, the population here has grown exponentially since the war started. The UAE allowed Russians to come here, allowed Russians to bring their assets here, and property prices have doubled in the last 18 months. Doubled. How interesting. Russians are coming here in big, big numbers. And they're paying Recently. in the last 18 months. Okay. Predominantly since the war started. Now, lots of Ukrainians as well, but predominantly Russians. There's a lot of money shifted here. The UAE has oil, so they've stuck two fingers up to the US and said, guys, you need our oil? You're not telling us what to do. Okay? And so that's why Russians can come here. On top of the fact that they've had their assets frozen in Europe, a lot of them, this has become a safe haven for them. So when you 
think about what you're saying. Of course, nobody wanted their teenage kids to be thrust to the front line and become soldiers in a war they didn't even want to be part of. In the first place. In the first place. And so then taking their kids and leaving the country. Another, Another indication of that is the amount of Russians that have been applying for passports non-Russian passports, but not Commonwealth passports or Cypriot passports, no, no. but Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, really? Turkmenistan passports, and, Georgia. and Georgian passports as well. Half a million people have left Russia in the last year. I think the number's bigger. And most of them. You think the number's bigger? You I think, think that's I, only the official number. I think it's much bigger. Really? The population here has taken half a million people. Oh, my God. Oh well, then it's nearer two million. It's it's huge. The the the, the trans- and they're young, aren't they? Parts of Dubai are being called Little Moscow. Oh my God! That never were before. We have we had one Russian radio station. We now have four. Okay. Wow. The numbers are growing. Everywhere you go, okay, to any of the nice restaurants, you'll find there's Russian menus. What are they well. doing here? What are they bringing to Dubai? Oh, their money. But oh, a lot of uh, a lot of it has been brought in. But you don't need money. What are they bringing? That's, I mean, one of they're the not great... starting businesses here. They're running oh. their businesses from here. Are they any good? Well, their businesses. I mean, the are... Indians I always think of as working so hard, getting whatever country they go to, they just get on with working. Are the Russians doing that? You don't see lots of Russian businesses being set up. What you find is head offices being set up of groups of companies oh. where. Where, where the, the owner, the founders or whatever are here running their business. It's not like they're bringing industry here. Not that I've seen. But they are spending money here. But you've got so much money that... Oh, but it's... The, the Regos figures... You know, when I was a child, and I'm 82 and you're a child... Thank you. When I Taking that child, one again, celebrate that. I wanted to be a millionaire. Yeah. I mean, Everybody's a millionaire now. It's just classical. Mm-hmm. Classical. What do they say, Do In seconds, okay, a million in seconds is how many days? A million in seconds is 11 days. God. A billion in seconds is 32 years. Yeah. That's the difference between the million and the billion. And we talk- But as Bunker Hunt said, a billion isn't what it used to be. <laughs> And now we have national debt in America. America. Well, half a billion was spent by Chelsea Football Club this year. 16 years of seconds, yeah. <laughs> I mean, half a billion. Well, let's talk about that then. Which football team are you a fan of, Arsenal? Well, I was born in the City Road in London. Oh, were you so really I'm born in City Road? Automatically an Arsenal fan. But in my day, Spencer, before you were even thought of, and I'm older than your parents, seven of the 11 came from within five miles of the stadium. Mm. We haven't got a bloody Englishman in the team now. I've started supporting Bristol Rovers. Mind you, they're just as not a... It, football is money, 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 money. It's who you can buy. We need a centre forward. One of my closest friends supports Fulham. We've all got problems in life. Mm-hmm. He said, who are doing Fulham. well this season? They're doing very well. They're sick. They rang me last night to say they were sick sick of his phone calls <laughs> and he said we need a back I said what well, what do you mean you need I will buy one from where Inter Milan I went, how can you support a team that just buys a back 
And he said, you don't understand, Jeffrey. And I said, no, I don't understand. I'm so out of touch and out of date. I believe a team should be local. Well, I've got a statistic here. So there's a, a famous crypto company called Crypto.com. They're an yeah. exchange. They sponsor globally Formula One as one of the title sponsors. Nice. They also sponsored the World Cup. And I had the CMO of Crypto.com on the podcast. I'm like, I want to know how much money's spent on sponsoring these kind of things. Yeah. Give me an idea here. Formula One, 20 races around the globe. Okay, the World Cup, one, two, week, four-week event. Okay, Formula One's clearly more expensive as a global sport. It's like the World Cup was twice as expensive to sponsor than Formula One. Now, they sponsored the, the Staples Arena in Los Angeles. They renamed it the Crypto.com Arena. That was $35 million over 10 years. They, the, the, the World Cup they sponsored, I think from what he told me, was something close to $50 million to sponsor the World Cup. We've now reached a stage where 50 million gets you a second-rate player and 10 million gets you a rubbish player. And I know the man who was the first man to get a million. He's still alive. He's a friend of mine to get a million. But paid a million? No. Transferred for a million. Was it Trevor Francis or Gary Bertels or who was it? Transfer fee of a million. Get them to ring in. Steve. I'm not going to tell you. And oh, dear gosh. friend. So it's the first player that was sold Ever for a sold million. For a million. He's younger than I am. He's 10, 15 years old. Dear friend. And of course, he can't understand it. And then you get the other extreme. The other extreme, Spencer. For all you oldies out there, I was a friend of Dennis Compton, mm -hmm. Godfrey Evans. Mm -hmm. I had the honor of knowing these people. Mm -hmm. They were penniless. Garfield Sobers, Gary Sobers, penniless. If they were alive today, they'd be multi. Well, hold on for a minute. So one of my closest friends here is a guy called Mikel Silvestre. He used to play for, Man uh, for Manchester United and Arsenal and is in the French World Cup team. And he's a football agent now. Statistics relating to footballers, even today, that go broke within five years of leaving the game. Even the top ones? Though. Even the top ones. Wow. Okay. Be gambling? Gambling, alcohol, they, they go into depression because they've been celebrated and, 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 and cheered on every day with 30, 40, 50,000 people in the stadium. And then all of a sudden you're nothing. And your life becomes pointless and empty. And what's the percentage you said? 60%. Wow. Now, granted, not all of them are that top 10% of the Premier League. There are players in the Premier League that earn £10,000 a week. And others who earn half a million. And love some others and half a minute. A week. A week, yeah. Are there premiers, players in the Premier League who earn 10,000 a week? Yeah. I didn't know that. I assume they were all on 50. No. No, they're not. There's even a player, I forget his name, in Manchester United, in the first team squad that's on 10,000 pounds a week. Now he's about to negotiate his contracts, and he's gonna he's gonna be two hundred thousand pounds for sure. Fearing your show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, does we talked about sports. We've talked about um, politics a little bit. So let's just finish on a couple of questions around politics, so that we can get this off the table here. Rishi Sunak, would you have voted for him? I did. Uh, he's a thoroughly decent human being. I now realise that he's a technocrat. Mm -hmm. Better, in my view better to be Chancellor of the Exchequer because he loves figures. He's a wonderfully mathematical mind. 
and I've learned in old age that your prime minister, John Major once said to me the toughest job he ever did was chief secretary to the treasury. The second toughest job he ever did was chancellor. And the third toughest was prime minister. But prime minister was nowhere near as tough as being chancellor or chief secretary. The premiership should be, you've obviously got to be a leader. You've got to have charisma. You've got to run a team. Mm -hmm. You've got to be a chairman. And I think he's thoroughly, no question, he's a thoroughly decent human being. Mm -hmm. But he's better, in my view, better... He would be better chancellor than prime minister. So who should be the prime minister? If I was prime minister, he'd be my chancellor. <laughs> who should be a prime minister? At the moment, I don't know. We've just had four prime ministers in four years. Margaret did 11 years. Tony Blair did 11 years. I mean, we're getting like Italy. <laughs> yeah. The farcical. Farcical. But we can't. One of the problems, Spencer, and now you'll get so many people ringing in and is this so badly paid? I met a young lady the other day I was a, a, a giving a speech at the Guild Hall. Brilliant young lady who's managing director of her company at 38. I said, we need you in the House of Commons. You're an obvious cabinet minister. Jeffrey, she said, I earn quarter of a million a year and I have two lovers. Do I really want to be in the House of Commons? And I thought, how many brilliant people are we losing because personal lives are now in the dust mm -hmm. and the pay is lousy. And I, by the way, just as true of Germany, Italy, France, mm -hmm. it's not just Britain. Mm -hmm. All of Europe's going through the same problem. We're getting second. I mean, can't we do better than Biden and Trump? I, I, I'm staggered. I mean, it's just not believable. I can't believe how. 300 million people can't decide on something better. I can't believe how 60 million people can't decide on something better. Because I think there are some... If there's, a, if there's a Margaret Thatcher from the 70s and the 80s, there's an equivalent out there right must, now. There's got there to be. must be in America, 10 of them. Mm. And it's, it's, it's tragic. It, it's tragic for the United States, which a nation who produced Jefferson, Lincoln... Roosevelt, Kennedy, is now giving us Biden and Trump. I don't understand it. Me neither. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. You're a fascinating gentleman and one I've loved every minute of spending. You're very kind. Thank you Thank very you much. Spencer, it's been lovely being on your show and so the question's so varied and interesting. Uh, and thank you very much for inviting me. And I'm touched by the fact that you love the association with people that's what makes you do it that's a terrific strength don't lose it thank you so much